Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at the script, and we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. It's good to see you guys. If you have a question, just write the word question in front of it, read it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. Uh, today, we are. our first question was left for us uh, at on one of our previous Q&As in the comments section. And I want to start off by saying it's, I am overcome with grief. How can I move on? And I want to start by saying, I'm so sorry for your loss. Uh, losing someone can be so difficult. And I understand that clearly. And I want to just spend a few minutes covering what we do when we grieve. Grieving is absolutely necessary. When you build a bond with someone, especially a strong bond, a bond of love, and then they are taken from you. Even if they're going to heaven and we know that we're gonna see them again, we don't grieve as others who have no hope, but we still grieve. Uh, I've heard people say before that they wondered why um, people that were Christians would grieve uh, because at all, because they know they're gonna see them again. Because you love them, because you were involved with them in life and you're gonna miss them even though you will see them again and you miss spending the rest of your life with them, which was a hope that you had, or at least that it would be longer if it's a parent um, or something like that. So when you're grieving, it's important to go through it. Some people can try to escape it. Uh, some people try to escape it by getting into relationships too quick or other relationships or with alcohol or some kind of a, of a drug. People can get stuck in grief if they don't go through it. And so you've got to embrace it. Know that, you've, that, that there's a pain. It's like you're injured in your soul and there's going to be pain while you're healing. And it's necessary to go through it. And if you try not to go through it, if you try to go around it, um, then you're going to end up maybe getting stuck in grief. You're going to end up with other consequences that are difficult. Uh, the second part of this question that I really want to deal with is how can I move on? The real answer to that is I don't believe that you can move on. I think you move forward. When you really love someone, especially when you're overcome with grief, then you've got to move forward in life. You don't ever move on. Um, I lost my wife 10 years ago and I heard people say of me, well, he's moved on. And I thought they, they couldn't be any more wrong. I've moved forward. The, the, the pain, the hurt in my soul lightened for sure. And that happened in time and that happened to going through real grieving. In the depths of my grief, I, um, I didn't feel like I wanted to live anymore. It wasn't suicidal. I just didn't care if I lived or died. That's the extent of the grief that I went through. And I did finally move through it. I finally did move forward. And uh, after the loss of my wife, God brought Kathy into my life and God has done so many good things. But that doesn't mean that there's not grief or that you don't go through grief. So I just encourage you, go through the grief. Um, some people are good at helping you through it in a practical way. Spend time with family and, um, and friends. Uh, get busy. Don't just have a lot of idle time. I know sometimes it feels like you should do nothing. Um, I started teaching again two weeks after I lost my wife. My wife. 
And someone said to me, that's too soon. And I agreed. I said, yeah, it is too soon, but what do you want me to do? What am I going to do? Sit in my house? At least I was able to study the Bible. At least I was able to put studies together and then go to church and be with people. And it gave me something to do. So sometimes things aren't always ideal when you're grieving, but you have to be practical about filling some of that time and finding ways uh, to make it through the really difficult times. So again, sorry for your loss. Um, I hope that you uh, are doing better and I want to welcome all of you who are joining us. Uh, we have people joining us from YouTube and from Facebook. It's good to see you guys as you are popping on here. Say hello. Let me know that you're there. Uh, so we have a question here from Andre. And Andre says, when the angels came and ministered to him, Matthew 4, 11, New King James Version, what did the angels do? Um, so let's go there. Let's take a look. Let me go to Matthew and I'll put it up on the screen for you here in just a moment. Matthew, what was it? 24, uh, 11. Okay. So there are two times angels ministered to him. They ministered to him in the garden of Gethsemane when he was so sorrowful that he thought he could die. And the angels came to him during his temptation. Let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you and we'll read it. That's not the right one. That's the right one. Okay, so uh, Jesus is out in the wilderness and he is being tempted. And once he says to Satan to be gone, he faces all three temptations. And of course he does that by quoting the word of God. This is spiritual warfare. The best spiritual warfare you have. People come up with all kinds of other things for spiritual warfare, but the best spiritual warfare is to stand on the word of God, knowing that's how you defeat the enemy. And it says, then the devil left him. So now you have a falling angel that left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The other passage I believe says strengthen him. And I would be really interested to know exactly what this word ministered is and how exactly they translated it. In fact, mom, let me go ahead and I'm going to go ahead and take a, I'm going to go ahead and take a look at it and see if I can't figure out what, what exact, exact word that is. Um, so I'm going to pull up my Strong's Concordance here. Go to Matthew 4, <clears throat> Matthew 4 and verse uh, 11, all right? And they came and ministered to him. So let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you. Okay, so uh, English uh, definition, deaconia. So we got our word deacon from that, right? To be attendant, wait upon, uh, to, uh, to act as a Christian deacon, to serve, to use, and to off of the office of a deacon. So that's interesting that that's the word that it uses for how they minister to Jesus. Um, so they, they, I take it, they strengthened him. They ministered to his soul, to his spirit. Um, I'm not sure. I know that they are ministering spirits to us. And I wonder if we ever are fatigued and worn out and tempted, whether angels ever come and minister to us. I don't think we have a lot of details. Um, it would be great to spend some time 
looking at all of the ways that angels interacted with people. Like I do know that an angel comes and touches the lips of Isaiah with a coal from the altar to purify his lips. Um, it'd, be, it'd be interesting to look at all the ways in which angels minister, but they came and they ministered to him twice. And I think that they were strengthening him. And um, I don't know that we can find out much more than that, but uh, great question. Andre, I really appreciate it. Uh, we have a question here. All right, this is from Enid, I think is how you say that. Uh, please explain the millennium. Will people who survive the tribulation live, die, have children as people do today? And believers have eternal bodies. What is the purpose of the millennium? Uh, when, uh, first of all, the purpose is for God to fulfill all of his promises that he gave to Israel. God's word will stand and every promise that has been made is going to pass. And Jesus is going to rule and reign over the world with a rod of iron, it says, for a thousand years. And so that's what the purpose of the millennium is, to let Jesus rule and reign. <clears throat> this earth has never been what God wanted it to be. We, Adam and Eve fell and they weren't able to have dominion the way that God wanted them to have dominion with him. And so the Bible says that we are going to rule and reign with him. So we're going to share dominion over the earth. So I think it is a regeneration of what God originally wanted. And yes, it will basically be the nation of Israel because many of them, if not all of them, are going to get saved during the tribulation period. God is going to supernaturally take care of them. Remember, he takes them into the wilderness and they are hidden away when the dragon wants to destroy them or the Antichrist is trying to destroy them. There may be some surviving Gentiles that weren't Christians when the rapture happened, but as soon as it happened, then they commit their lives to Christ and may, they might live. The Bible says that flesh is going to be rare. So I don't think there'll be very many, but there may be some surviving. In fact, I believe that there will be. Um, and, uh, and they will populate the earth as well during that thousand years. But that's the purpose of it. And yes, uh, they're gonna live, they're gonna die, they're gonna have children, they're gonna um, rebel, they're gonna sin. Uh, when Satan is released at the end of the period, he stirs up the hearts of the people who rebel against him again. And there is a war against God, um, against Jesus at the end of the millennium period. And he destroys them all. All right, so thank you, Enid. I appreciate your question. Uh, let's see, we have another one here from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, will certain Jewish laws be reinstated during the Millennium uh, Kingdom? Don't eat this, don't marry your cousin, etc. Also, he never slumbers or sleeps. Is this a good verse to pray for a good night's sleep. Um, he never slumbers or sleep. Yeah, well, God, yeah, God's always with us, right? Uh, he never leaves us or forsakes us. Jesus said, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So I think that would be a, a fine prayer, Jari. Um, will, will Jewish laws be reinstated during the millennium period? Well, we know that sacrifices will be reinstated. And I think that the sacrifices will be a memorial to what Christ did 
will these Jewish people be under the laws of the Old Testament? I don't think so because Jesus fulfilled those laws and we are set free from them today. Uh, you do have Paul going to the temple and taking a vow, kind of being, I think, even pushed to do that, but I don't think that the laws will ever be reinstated and uh, certainly not marrying your cousin. Um, and um, yeah, what was the other one here? <clears throat> yeah, whatever, um, whatever other laws there are. There's 613 laws in the Old Testament and they've been replaced by the law and the prophets are fulfilled by loving one another. And we're told clearly that once we've come to Christ, we no longer need the law and that the law has changed of necessity, it says in the book of Hebrews. We are not under the law and we don't have to keep the Sabbath. I, and I shouldn't say we don't have to keep the Sabbath because we do, but Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus became the high priest, so we don't have a high priest. Jesus became the sacrifice, so we're not giving sacrifices. Jesus became our Sabbath rest. He said, come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so Jesus fulfilled all of those things, and I don't believe that we will be under them in the millennium period. Maybe there's a scripture somewhere that would make us think a little bit different than that. All right, so we have a question here from, is it Corinne? Corinne says, regarding 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, so I think I know which passage you're talking about here. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. Let me get here, head coverings. Yeah, let's go ahead and read this. Okay, so um, 1 Corinthians uh, 11, 2 through 16, what are your thoughts on head coverings for women? It's not a common practice nowadays, but is it in but it is in the New Testament. So yes, it is in the New Testament and let's go ahead and read it. So here we have 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and it's dealing with head coverings. It says, "Now I praise you brethren that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you." That's a verse, by the way, that gets greatly misused. The tradition that Paul gave them were the traditions in the scriptures that he wrote. He wasn't giving them traditions. People try, will try to take traditions and put them on the same level of scripture and they'll use that verse to try to do that. He says, just as I delivered them to you, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man. So now you get into the question of complementarianism compared to egalitarianism. And uh, I believe that the Bible teaches complementarism, which is that men and women are, are equal, but different, and they have different roles. And there are certain things that God has a man to do and certain things that God has a woman to do. Um, just because a general is over a lieutenant doesn't mean that the general's a better person than the lieutenant, doesn't mean that they're smarter, doesn't mean they're better looking, doesn't, doesn't mean anything about equality it just means a difference in rank, that's all. That what God, what the general is doing is different than what the lieutenant is doing and the lieutenant is under the authority of the general. And I believe that this passage is talking about that. It says, every man praying or prophesying having his head covered dishonors his head. Uh, but every woman who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head for that is one 
and the same as if her head were shaved. So um, we're talking about a picture of authority here. We're talking about a picture of authority in the culture of the New Testament. This is how I understand this passage. Um, I may eventually change my mind about it. I just want to take a look at it how I understand it now. There are certain things in the Bible that are cultural. And I realize that this is used way too broadly and it should rarely be used. But there are times when we've got to understand the culture that we're in. Another, uh, another thing the Bible says is greet one another with a holy kiss. And in America, we don't do that. If you're in Italy, they do. We don't do that here because it's our, not our culture. We hug instead, or we shake hands, or we give up, you know, a, a hearty good to see you. How are you, you know? Um, and we express our love that way for other people. So I think it's dealing with authority. It's talking about if, if your head was covered, it was a sign of being under authority. That's why this passage starts off by talking about the man and the woman. The head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is, is man. By the way, I don't think that's talking about every man and every woman, right? But it is, um, but it is your own husband the person that you would have as an authority. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying, prophesying, having his head covered dishonors his head. Um, and so again, I think that this is cultural, talking about uh, authority, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is the one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. And I, I do like that. You know, women are better looking than men. And uh, they are the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman is from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority um, on her head because of the angels. Okay, I don't understand this last section, but we do know we're talking about authority now. For this reason, women ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Um, and I don't know what it is that makes the angels have a lack of respect or respect for them. Again, it could be in their culture. It doesn't mean because we have angels today and there were angels in those days and the angels are present with us as well as they were with them that we have to worry about the angels with you women having your head uncovered. But perhaps having a sign, not following God's word, not being submissive to God's word, um, upset, looks like it's upset the angels. Uh, let's just read on here a little bit more. Nevertheless, neither is a man independent of a woman nor a woman independent of a man in the Lord. All right, so um, we'll go ahead and leave it there. Hopefully that answers your question. I do believe it is cultural. Um, I know that's, uh, that's a little tough and that's why I said, you know, as you look at these passages, you want to be able to compare them to other passages in the Bible, take time to really study them and, um, and come to them. But I think that most scholars take it that way. And I think that's the right way 
to take that, that it's cultural. The same idea is in braiding hair where the Bible talks about women not braiding their hair. What braided hair meant then is different than what it means now. Having your head covered then meant something. It means something different now. And uh, so I think that that's the answer to that. So we have a question from Annika. Annika says, question, to what extent should we follow what Paul says, forgetting what lies behind me versus leaning on our past? All right, so um, I wish I remembered where that passage is. I know it's in Philippians and I'm trying to remember the larger context of what he says. I think he's talking about who he, it might not be Philippians. I think he's talking about who he was as far as a Pharisee, that he was a, that he was a Pharisee, that he was a Hebrew, um, all the things that he had accomplished beforehand. And then he says, forgetting those things which lie behind. It's not a matter of forgetting the negative things that happened or more the bad things that happened to him. Paul in context is saying, and I believe that this is the case, um, if you can throw up that passage, we'll take a look at it, um, but I do believe this is the case. He's saying, I don't count anything that I have accomplished as anything. Forgetting what lies behind me, I press on towards the goal, towards the mark, towards the prize that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, so we should not lean back on, on accomplishments, religious accomplishments, which is what Paul's talking about, or accomplishments from this world. We should move on in a relationship with Christ, being in love with him. So yeah, I do believe that we should forget the um, what lies behind us to the extent that we're living for Christ and our minds are set on him and for the future. And certainly if there's accomplishments that make you feel proud or arrogant, and I think that's what Paul's talking about, then those are things that we should forget and put our mind on him and begin to live for those things. So if someone wants to throw that scripture up, um, Annika, I would love to be able to see it. Uh, just put the word question in front of it uh, so that I have a chance to be able to take a look at it. All right, so we have a question from Connie. Connie, good to see you. Would you please explain Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, did Jesus go to Abraham's bosom? All right, so let's go ahead and take a look at this. It's Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. All right. Let's go ahead and uh, put it on the screen for you. So um, this is a section where he's talking about Jesus ascending, right? And we'll just go back to eight. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So Jesus ascends to the Father and goes on, it explains a little bit more here. It says, now thus he ascended, what does it mean but that he first also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He was descended is also the one or he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all, all the heaven that he might fill all things. Um, first of all, the parable, let me go back to your question here. First of all, the parable, the um, Abraham's bosom or Abraham's comfort, I like to call it, um, is a parable. 
and we're told that it's a parable. Or I guess we're not told it's a parable, but it looks, maybe it, maybe it does say it's a parable. Um, but uh, is it just a parable? Is it a story? Or is it something that really takes place? Is he talking about a real place? That's the question that we have. Is there a place in the center of the earth where there is a divider, there was a divider, where some were comforted with Abraham and some were in a place of torment? And that we're not quite sure of. But Jesus descended and some believe that he wasn't descending down into hell. We know that he preached to prisoners who were kept in chains. Hell is a place in Revelation. The grave or Sheol is a place that's here. And um, so when it says, um, when it says that he descended and ascended and gave gifts to men, it is believed that he went to the holding place where all the souls of everyone who had ever lived, committed their lives, had committed, had believed in God. Jesus revealed himself to them. He saved them and they were taken up into heaven and that he gave gifts to men. And the, men, the gifts that he gave are apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. So he gave gifts to men to be able for this so that they could draw closer to Christ. Um, I don't know if, if uh, Jesus went to Abraham's bosom. M maybe, maybe that was the holding place where they were. Um, maybe it's a, it's a story and it was a different place and there's no Abraham's comfort. It seems to me like there would be when you're, when you're looking at that story. All right. So thank you, Connie. I appreciate uh, your question. Uh, we have to see, we have another one here. So we have a, another question here that I've preloaded. Um, should we tithe of our, off our gross or net income? Uh, so if you do have a question, then write the word question down and then write your question out and uh, we'll take a look at it. Um, so the question here, which was left at a previous Q&A, uh, has to do with tithing. And remember, tithing is an Old Testament principle. It was never reiterated in the New Testament. And I realized that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, which is at the very least a type of Christ before the law. So people will say that the tithing is still around today. And of course, God speaks in the Old Testament of them stealing from him by not tithing from him. However, the New Testament never reiterates the concept of tithing. They were living under a theocracy, and so they gave their tithes to God. We know we're supposed to give. The Bible says, give and it will be given unto you. The Bible says we're supposed to take care of the poor. We know that taking care of widows and orphans is pure and, and undefiled religion in the sight of God, as it says, in the book of James, but tithing may be a good way to go. You know, you want to give 10% or so to God, but you get to determine that. And you're not supposed to give grudgingly. You're not supposed to give out of necessity because you have to, but you're supposed to give because you want to. This is different than the principle of tithing that was in the Old Testament. And so you get to make a decision about what you give. Are you going to tithe off your gross or off of your net? make a prayerful decision if you want to tithe. People will often ask me, um, can I give less than 10% of my tithe? And the answer to that is yes, you can give less, but no, 
because it's not a tithe anymore. 10% is the tithe. The tithe means 10%. And so where you're tithing of 10% to God, and that's, like I said, a good place to kind of be, but it doesn't necessarily uh, mean that you should be, um, that you have to tithe um, that amount. So I, I do give 10% at least, just because I believe that it's a good guideline to go by. And so thank you very much for your question. We have another question here from, it looks like um, Marilyn. Uh, does the Bible, um, does Bible say which we should do when we die? Does the Bible say what we will do when we die, cremation or burial? Ah, thank you for your question. Um, the Bible has nothing to say about cremation or burial. In, um, and, and I think that this is really important for us because it, God's able to resurrect us no matter what happens. People die in fires and they die. And so the Bible doesn't deal with that topic of whether you're supposed to bury someone or whether they are to be or, or to have them cremated. If you want to cremate yourself, it's cheaper sometimes and people want to do it, um, then go ahead and do it. Or you want to cremate someone, that's fine. God can handle that. God's not upset by it. He would have given some kind of prohibition if it was something that we were not supposed to do. All right? So, no, it uh, doesn't say anything about, about that. All right? So, uh, it's, again, good to see you guys. If you're joining us for the very first time, good to have you here. Uh, if you have a question, then you can write the word question or a Q in front of it, and then write out your question, and we'll take time uh, to take a look at it. Uh, we have another question loaded up, and this one is, um, I, I seem to face a lot of temptation. I don't want to do it. How can I stop? Um, and I want to say, first of all, that there is not a person who does not relate to this. Uh, the Bible says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those things I end up doing. The Bible says that there is this struggle going on, the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the, fle the flesh so that we don't do the things we want. We want to serve God. We want to follow him. But because of that battle that goes on inside of us, we sin. The Bible says if anybody says that they have no sin, that they are lying. And everybody sins. And that's why we ask God to forgive us our sins and why we forgive other people. Because we know we have been forgiven and we don't want to be hypocrites and not forgive other people. Uh, so you seem to face a lot of temptation. My first question would be, what are you delighting in? Because our desires follow what we delight in. The Bible says in the Old Testament, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He's certainly not going to give you wicked, ungodly desires, but he's going to be able to give you things that are according to his will. And so if you delight in this world, if you delight in sinful things, if you delight in um, explicit things, if you delight in watching or being involved in or being angry, then no wonder there are outbursts of wrath. The things that you delight in are the things that you're going to end up desiring. 
And so if you seem to face a lot of temptation, I would ask, what are you bringing in? So the Bible says that if you sow to the flesh, from the flesh you will reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, from the Spirit you will reap life. And so you want to sow to the Spirit because that's what you're going to reap down the road. What you're reaping today is what you've sown in the past. So how much have you sown to the flesh? How much have you delighted in the things of the flesh? So that's your desire and your passion. And you can begin today by delighting in God today. You could say, for the rest of today, I'm going to delight in Him. I'm going to walk in the Spirit. Because the Bible says, if I walk in the Spirit, I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so, if you walk in the Spirit, you delight in the Lord, you have the desires of your heart begin to change, then tomorrow it's going to be better. And if you do it again tomorrow, the next day it's going to be better. And you do it the next day. And you, you may not be able to go from zero to a hundred overnight when it comes to the, the type of temptation that you face and how much you face. But what you can do is lighten it up for tomorrow. And that's the key. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day. There may be people who delight in God more. There may be people who walk in the Spirit more. And they've been doing it for years. And you're just now going to really start to walk in the Spirit. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not assuming that you don't walk in the Spirit or you don't delight in the Lord. I'm just saying those passages are connected to how much temptation we feel. Also remember that the Bible says that we are to pray that we are not led into temptation. God doesn't tempt anyone, the Bible says, but Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. So are you praying that you would not be led into temptation? Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then pray that you would not be led into temptation. And I've got to believe that if you will do these things, the New Testament equivalent to delight yourself in the Lord, by the way, is John 15, where Jesus says, abide in me and let my word abide in you. And you will ask whatever you desire and it will be given to you. So that's another key to having less temptation in your life, that you abide in the word and God's word abides in you. You abide in Christ and God's word abides in you. Jesus said, blessed, Jesus was teaching one day, and a woman cried out from the crowd, blessed be the, the, the breast that, that nursed you um, and um, the woman who gave you birth. And Jesus responds with, yes. Yes, Mary was blessed. But then he says, more so are those who hear the commands of God and do them. When you read God's word and you do them, there is a blessing we can, we can put ourselves under a blessing by being obedient to God's word. And this is very powerful. And so, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you, and it'll give you the desires of your heart. If you delight yourself in the things of this world, no wonder you're desiring the things of this world. So, you've got to ask yourself what you're delighting in. Walk in this, the spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And there's a battle going on inside of you and you've got to sow to the spirit so that from the Spirit you can reap life and then abide in His Word, abide in Christ, walk with Him, delight in Him, and let His Word abide in you. 
all of these are going to affect how much temptation you are going through. You say, I don't want to do it. How can I stop? Well, it takes some forethought. It takes you being able to say, I really want to handle this and getting serious about it and turning from it and pivoting. And it might, behavioral issues take a while to change. And sometimes God can deliver you. And sometimes you can make a determination. Sometimes you can say, I am not going to do this anymore. But I think that if you're not doing these other things, then temptation is going to continue to come your way and you're going to face a lot of temptation and that um, that is the way to be able to overcome it. I don't want to do it, but you really do, right? You don't want to certainly after you do it, but you want to when you're tempted. If you didn't want to, you wouldn't be tempted. The Bible says each one of us is tempted when we are enticed. And I totally understand what you're saying. I don't want to do it, even though and I do that in prayer. Lord, I didn't want to do that. Forgive me, but I know I wanted to do it. So that is how you can reduce the temptation that comes into your life, those things. And um, I think it's a really good study to understand how to reduce temptation, um, not just facing temptation. You want to be able to face temptation and win. Joseph wiggled out of his coat, left his coat behind. You got to be willing to leave some things behind to say, this isn't important enough for me. I want to get away from it. So he left his coat behind and he fled and we need to flee temptation and sometimes leave some things behind. Be willing to surrender certain things and give them up. All right, so thank you uh, for your question. That was one that we had been left in a previous Q&A. It's good to see you guys. If you have a question, then write the word question out, reread it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. Um, it's good to have you guys here at our Q&A. We do this generally on Wednesdays and on Saturdays. Last Wednesday, we had an issue, by the way, with the internet and I got popped off. And um, so I, I hope that we have this solved now. All right, let me see if we got another question here. Um, so we have a question here from, it looks like, is it toes? Um, so I'm confused. SDA say, so that is um, Seventh-day Adventist, that when we die, we sleep until Jesus comes again. And other Christians say, once we die, we immediately go to heaven. I know. I believe in Christ. All right. So, um, Seventh-day Adventists, by the way, some of them can be very extreme about the Sabbath and can be very cult-like and others can be really mild about the Sabbath and not make it an issue of salvation. So, I don't necessarily have a problem with Seventh-day Adventists until they try to tell me that I have to keep the Sabbath in order to be saved. And not all of them teach that. Um, but they do teach soul sleep. And this is that when you die, you're just going to wake up in heaven and everybody's going to be there. No one's going to get there before anybody else. I don't believe that the Bible teaches that. The Bible says, Paul said, I think again, this is in Philippians. I'm in, in difficulty. I'm in, in, I'm in a hard place. I want to go and be with Christ and that would be better for me. But to stay here is better for you. I don't think Paul would have said that if it was just going to sleep. 
He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul would have wanted to stay as long as he possibly could because of that was his personality if he wasn't to be with Christ. Paul said again, to be absent from this body is to be present with Christ. We see in the tribulation period, when people die, they're martyred, that their souls are under the altar in heaven. So they're in heaven in the presence of God after they die. I think all of these and other passages help us to understand that when we die, we go into the presence of God. And what we're talking about is the intermediate state. That's what theologians call it. And if you believe that you're just going to go to sleep when you die and just wake up in the future, I don't think it changes much. You can believe that, but I think we are in the presence of God. And for those who have, have died, they're in his presence now in the intermediate state. And I think it's an important question. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate your question and good to have you here with us. I hope that clarifies it um, for you. We, I'm looking for another question here now. Um, so I have a question from Lisa. Lisa says, I have a family member that believes in the new age, astrology, the universe and stars, how you can talk to someone telepathically. Also says that Christian, uh, there is Christian tarot, tarot cards, um, readings. How do I approach this and let them know it's wrong? Well, first of all, Lisa, I think that this person's not a Christian, right? Because as Christians, we're told to stay away from these things. We are not supposed to be involved in them. Uh, and so that's first. I would have them in the category of someone you want to win to Christ. And I would begin to pray for them. I don't feel compelled to straighten out the theology or the beliefs of someone who doesn't know Christ. I think that we can kind of get distracted away from what the issue really is, and that is for them to be saved. And so I would be praying for them, looking for opportunities to share Christ with them. If these come up, you can say these things were denounced in the Old Testament. They were told to stay away from them completely, and we should stay away from them. Uh, her beliefs probably run pretty deep, and she probably thinks negatively about Christians because that's what people in the New Age and who believe these things feel. So there has to be a transformation. Remember, no one can get saved unless God first draws them. So he's got to begin to draw her. So I would, I would not make an issue over a, a lot of those things. If they come up, I would talk about them, but I would not try to persuade them that they're wrong because what good does that do if she doesn't come to Christ? So you persuade her that tarot cards are wrong, that these things are wrong, but she doesn't have a real relationship with Christ. And if she does have a relationship with Christ, then she's going to want to be away from these things. So, but what good would it do if she, you do that and then she dies? So I'm not trying to change the behavior of a non-believer, unless, you know, it's my son or daughter or something, right? I'm trying just to, to win them over to Christ. 
And I think you can talk about those things. Uh, you should probably do, do some research on these things. What does the Bible have to say about talking to the dead, which it does has a lot to say about it, by the way. Um, what does the Bible say about these things? It says that they are an abomination. The act itself is an abomination to God, um, not the people that are involved in it. And that's important, an important distinction to be able to make. So I would begin, I would see them as unsaved. They need to come to Christ. Pray that God starts drawing them. Pray the conversations would open up and you would be able uh, to share and to talk with them about Christ and to win them uh, to the Lord. All right, thanks, Lisa. I appreciate uh, your question. So Jari, we have a uh, follow-up here, I think our uh, future Q&A follow-up to uh, true women are the head of children. Um, yes, Jari. So when I think, and, and there is a, there's a term, soft comp complementarianism, because people have abused this idea that men are the head over women. And it's been abused in a lot of different ways. Sometimes men think they have total authority over all women. Sometimes women aren't allowed to use any of their gifts and in any way, shape or form. And I think that this is wrong. I believe that when God created Adam and Eve, he created them equally. And then in the fall, there became this position that was there after the fall and that God has it this way. So ideally, it's not what God wanted, but we are living in a lot of conditions that are not ideal. And um, honor your father and mother, obey your father and mother. It doesn't say that one has more authority than the other. It just says obey your father and mother. And so yes, children are to are under the authority of a of a woman and other women and they could be an authority over other women as well you might have a woman's director i know a lot of people don't want to call women pastors at all um people will say they'll try to avoid that i think it could be problematic i'm not so sure that they couldn't be a woman's pastor or children's pastor um but if you have a a, a woman's director and she's overseeing other women then she would be an authority over them. So women can have authority. And I think that's important for us uh, to be able to understand. Good to see you guys here. We have another question from, it looks like Christopher. Uh, Christopher says, good to have you here, by the way. Who was Paul talking to in Hebrews 6, 4 through 8? Uh, who was his audience? I think this is gonna be a good one, all right? So let's go ahead and take a look. Let's go to Hebrews six and we're going to be looking at four through eight and i want to put that up on the screen for you and so uh, let's make sure we got let's go back to three here for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer for if he were on earth he would not be a priest since you are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy in the shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses, am I in the right place? I'm, am I in Hebrews? Let me make sure I'm in Hebrews 6. Let me go ahead and get this off the screen here for you for a second. 
and I will Hebrews 6. Yeah, I thought I was in the wrong place. Um, I'm like, where is it coming up here? All right, so here we go. Hebrews 6, uh, 4 through 8. So I'm not sure what the context or audience is from um, chapter eight in the book of Hebrews. Um, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted of heavenly gifts and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So this is one of the difficult passages in the Bible, right? And I think that what it's talking about here is what Jesus was talking about when he talked about the unpardonable sin. The Pharisees knew God. They knew about God. They knew him. They had studied him. They had all of this information about him. And remember that Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians that have a lot of information about God who know the Old Testament, who know the Old Testament passages. It doesn't necessarily mean that these guys were saved. They, it, it, it sounds like it, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and became partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. We would not say that about anybody who is born again and then walks away from Christ. Even if you, no matter what your stance is, if you believe in once saved, always saved or not, if someone knows Christ and walks away from him, it's impossible to renew them to repentance here, which would be the unpardonable sin. We believe that anybody who walks away could come back. I walked away from God when I was 18 and I came back when I was 19. So this has to do, I believe, with people that have a lot of information and a lot of knowledge and they haven't really made a commitment to him. Maybe they're under the law and they were okay under the law and they had not come to Christ. It says they, they, that they crucify the son of God. Um, it's since they crucify again themselves, the son of God and put him to an open shame. So I think he's talking to some, a very specific case. Um, maybe we don't understand all of what he's talking about when he says that but I think that's the best way to look at this passage and to understand it. I don't think he's talking about people being able to lose their salvation here. I think he's talking about people that know the word of God very, very well and who walk away and don't do it. And then there comes a time when they cannot come back to repentance again. Like there's a door that's open and they've gone too far. Like, when they accuse Jesus of, of being filled with a demonic spirit. And so Jesus said, anything you say against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but not anything against the Holy Spirit. The, or he doesn't, say, he doesn't say a word spoken against the Holy Spirit. He says blasphemy of the Spirit. Uh, a word spoken against the Son of Man and then blasphemy of the Spirit. The blasphemy of the Spirit is to, to continue a rejection of God. And there comes a point where you reject so much that you can't come back. And Jesus did this in his preaching as well. He started at one point, he started talking in parables because he didn't want people to hear and turn because they had gone too far. They had rejected, they had rejected, they had rejected, even though they had all of this light. 
And so if that's what this passage is talking about, it's people that receive a bunch of light, a bunch of understanding. They've got everything they need for salvation, but they reject and they reject and they reject and they finally go too far. And it's impossible to restore them to repentance. This would be the unpardonable sin. And you say, well, how do I know I've done that? Well, the question is, do you wanna, do you wanna come back? It's impossible to renew you to repentance. If you say, well, I don't wanna repent. Well, then maybe you've done it. I don't know. Whatever that is, maybe you've done that. If you say, well, I don't wanna do that. Well, then repent and come back to Christ. Come back or come to Christ and live for him. All of this knowledge that you have about him, if, you, if it's possible for this to happen, it's gotta be someone that has all of that knowledge and then they are not walking with him. And so if you have all of that knowledge and you're not walking with him, then you wanna make sure uh, that you repent and you turn to him and you follow him. You haven't committed it if you wanna come back. And I go all the way back to the, my youth pastor days when I had people, a girl came to me with her Bible open to this chapter and she said, I think I've committed this. And I said, do you wanna come back? And she said, yes. I said, you haven't committed it because you wanna come back. All right, so thank you very much uh, for your question. I appreciate that. Um, we have another question here from Yvette. Yvette says, Pastor Robert Furrow, how can Christians deal with persecution and what does the Bible tell us in the book of Proverbs about it? So thank you for your question, Yvette, and good to have you here. Um, off the top of my head, I'm not gonna be able to tell you what Proverbs says about uh, persecution. I don't, I'm, I'm, wheels are turning. I can't remember anything about it, but I can tell you the first part of your question. How are Christians to deal with persecution? So Jesus said, when you are persecuted, rejoice. So we are supposed to rejoice that we are persecuted with Christ. And maybe a good understanding of that is what we really need. That if someone's persecuting you, then you're shining bright enough for him of that, that people see Christ in you. And it's not you they hate, it's Jesus that they hate. And so when you're living your life for, for him and people begin to mock you, people begin to persecute you, then we are supposed to rejoice. We're also supposed to pray for those who persecute us. So we rejoice and we pray for them. We pray that God would touch their hearts. We bless those that curse us. And we rejoice in that persecution. So people come to me sometimes, they'll say, I'm being persecuted at work and should I go to my supervisor and tell them? And the answer is, well, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that's the answer or not. I don't know if the answer is not to, but I do know this. Whatever you do, you're supposed to rejoice in that persecution because we're able to, because we're living for Christ the way he wants us to live for him. And we are shining enough for him that people see Christ in us and they hate Christ in us. So thank you very much for your question. I really appreciate that, Yvette. Um, and let me see if we have any other questions here. Good to see all of you guys here. And did I miss one from, um, let's see, did I, I miss one here from Kay? 
I mean, you may bring this on here and look at this. Um, thank you for answering this one. My son has asked, have asked, oh, because uh, he's as a Catholic friend who talks about purgatory. In my reply earlier, I didn't know that SDA meant um, what it meant. I believe we are in his presence. Ah, thanks, Kay. I appreciate that. Yeah, um, there was an earlier question that we had about soul sleep and whether or not when we die, if we are in the presence of God. And it came from this, um, the Seventh-day Adventist teach soul sleep. All right. So um, thank you guys very much for joining me today for our Q&A. Um, I feel like there are a few questions that I just uh, didn't quite answer right or rather that I I didn't have the answer to. And I always hate when that happens, but we're not trying to say that we have every answer that's out there. We just want to search the scriptures and know what the Bible has to say. And I think if anybody is trying to act like they have every answer that's out there, that can be problematic as well. All right. So just trying to be real with y'all. All right. So it's good to see you. May the Lord truly bless you. I'd like to invite you to our service. We have a service in two hours. Uh, we are going to be looking at Jesus predicting his future, the future of his death. He told his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die there and why it matters, why it's important, was important to them and why it's important to us and why this is an area where there are a lot of critics that criticize this particular statement from Jesus. So that'll be six o'clock at our East, um, at our West campus tonight. It's good to see you guys. Thank you so much for your questions. I look forward to uh, seeing you guys on Wednesday night again. All right. So God bless you guys. I'm going to go ahead and sign out now. We will see you.